This is the Unsuitable Podcast. I'm Mary B. Seyfert, a communicator, creator, and coach passionate about filling the gap between what the church offers and what single Christians need. Each episode this season, we're going to explore what it looks like to form deep relationships as people who aren't married. This week, you're going to hear from Bridget Eileen Rivera. Bridget Eileen writes and speaks on faith, sexuality, and justice. Her website, Meditations of a Traveling Nun, is a leading resource on gay celibacy, attracting thousands of unique visitors every month. She has worked with a number of faith-based organizations, including Revoice, Christians for Social Action, and Preston Sprinkles Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, where she contributed to the Digital Leaders Forum. Rivera is currently pursuing her PhD in sociology from the City University of New York Graduate Center. On this episode, you'll hear Bridget Eileen and I talk about how she got into LGBTQ plus advocacy work, what Christians misunderstand about pride, what queer culture can teach the church about community and chosen family, and queer platonic partnership. Just as a heads up, there is a brief mention of homophobia and suicidal thoughts in this episode. Please listen with care. Before we start the interview, I want to take just a minute to tell you about the awesome company Unsuitable is partnering with this season. As singles, sometimes it's easy to feel like the redheaded stepchildren of the church, which is exactly why I partnered with Rise of the Gingers. Rise of the Gingers is a t-shirt and accessory company made just for the 2%, the wrongfully alleged as soulless and often freckle-engulfed ginger folks out there. If you're a ginger or know a ginger, head to riseofthegingers.com. Don't forget, this can also make the perfect gift. Use code UNSUITABLE10 for 10% off your order at riseofthegingers.com. Rise of the Gingers is created by gingers for gingers. You will not find better redhead swag anywhere else. Again, use code UNSUITABLE10 for 10% off your entire purchase. All right, here's my conversation with Bridget Eileen Rivera. Hey, Bridget, what's up? Not much. I'm glad to be here and glad to have a chat with you. Oh my gosh, I'm so grateful for your time and I'm grateful that you're here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, I would love for you to start us off by just telling the people a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I do a lot of advocacy around LGBTQ issues in the church. I am a Christian, I am a lesbian, and I'm also celibate. And so I have a lot of thoughts on just gender and sexuality in the church and specifically LGBTQ issues. And so I do a lot of advocacy around that. I currently have a book coming out called Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church. And that's just kind of unpacking discrimination against queer people and Christianity. So that's my book. It's coming out. I'm also getting a PhD in sociology. So that's me in a nutshell. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about, you know, you say you do a lot of advocacy. What does that look like? Maybe you can talk a little bit too about like how you got into that, like how you started doing that work. Yeah, well, I guess it started because I have a blog and I've been blogging for a pretty long time for over 10 years now. 
And I haven't that whole time blogged about gender and sexuality, but around 2016, really started feeling called to start writing more about my experience being a lesbian and a Christian and being celibate at the same time, Mm -hmm. because I had just been getting increasingly frustrated by a lot of the narratives I was constantly coming up against in Christian Mm -hmm. circles and constantly finding that I rarely could get a word in edgewise to explain myself, to talk about the ways in which those types of perspectives are the result of a lot of um, stigma and Mm -hmm. prejudice and not actually a result of what is actually true about queer Mm -hmm. people. So I just found myself getting frustrated because I could never get a word in edgewise. And so I started blogging about my experiences as a lesbian in the church because I wanted to get my perspective out there, especially with my church, family and friends, wanting to like set the record straight and provide Mm -hmm. an alternative way of thinking about these things. And I guess that just kind of led one thing to another. And the blog really grew and started generating just a lot of traffic from readers coming in, wanting to, you know, read what I was saying on the blog, because it's a really big issue. It's a really important issue. And not a whole lot of people are really speaking into queer issues in the church from a more traditional perspective. There's, you know, very limited resources that are traditional in their approach to sexual ethics, but do not approach traditional ethics from a from a homophobic place, from a place that defines queer people by sin, that mm-hmm. defines same-sex attraction by sin as inherently sinful. And so I guess that was and has been the conversation I've been kind of fostering on my blog. And more recently, talking more and more about just kind of the harmful narratives that exist and how and how those do harm to queer people. Mm. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit more about some of those narratives? Yeah, I think a really big narrative that is especially harmful is this idea that LGBTQ people are inherently sinful. Mm-hmm. And that but that that idea actually has a variety of different expressions. It doesn't always look the same, so it can be a little deceptive. Mm-hmm. But One of the most common ways that it currently manifests in Christian circles is uh, the idea that the experience of same-sex attraction itself is a sin needing repentance, that just to be attracted to a person of the same sex, you have sinned as a result of that attraction, and therefore you need to repent. And that idea, what that does is it creates a false reality for a gay person where they are never able to escape sin. They have no control Mm -hmm. over their ability not to sin. And so just by existing, they are sinful. Just by inhabiting the world as themselves, they are sinning because we don't control who we are attracted to. We control 
what we do, how we respond to our attractions, but we, we really can't control who we're attracted to. And by defining same-sex attraction as a sin that needs to be repented of, it, it really turns, when you're gay, your entire experience as sinful. Um, and it creates a lot of despair, a lot of depression in people who are attracted to the same sex because you can't escape yourself. <laughs> yeah. And the result is this mentality that the only way that I can live a righteous life is if I stop being gay. That's impossible. You can't make yourself stop being gay. And the result of that is oftentimes suicidal thoughts because if you can't stop being who you are, well, then a lot of people, you know, the, the conclusion is, well, you know, there's no point in yeah. even trying to make this work. And so it's, it's a very harmful teaching. It does, it does a lot, a lot of damage and I think really needs to be addressed in the ways that Christians think about queer people. Yeah. Kind of along those lines, you've talked a little bit on social media about like it's it's Pride Month now as we're recording mm -hmm. this. And you've talked a lot about different types of pride and, and how that can inform how we as Christians view Pride Month. Would you mind talking a little bit about that here? That's an important question because when it comes to pride, a lot of people will say like, how can you celebrate pride? Because is it pride sinful? Isn't like the, like pride is one of the seven deadly sins. So how can you say that pride is good? You know, LGBTQ people shouldn't be having pride. And, you know, there's other critiques of LGBTQ pride, you know, that it's excessively sexual and, you know, celebrating sin and all of these mm -hmm. things, all of which are not necessarily understanding the point of pride, but mm -hmm. dialing back to the basic idea of pride, you know, people a lot of times object to pride because pride is supposed to be a sin. But I think we all know that there are two ways that you can have pride. There is the pride that is synonymous with arrogance, with being hubristic, and that is 100% a sin. The Bible, you know, never talks about that in a positive way. But then there's the second type of pride, which is more of a, like, a joyful glorying in something that is worth taking glory in, kind of like a, a joyful exuberance in something. And the Bible does reference that kind of pride explicitly and talks about it positively. And so the there's a few verses that kind of show this. And one of them is Isaiah 60, 15, where it says that where God is speaking and he says, I will make you an everlasting pride, hmm. a joy from generation to generation. And so in that verse, we understand that pride is a good thing. And then another one, Chronicles 17, 6 says, he took great pride in the ways of the Lord. And that kind of has that idea on um, the ways in which we use it. When we take pride in, I don't know, we take pride in our daughter um, or a son or a brother or because they are important to us, we take pride in them. 
And that's kind of this idea in Chronicles 17.6, he took great pride in the ways of the Lord. This was something that he was proud of because he could glory in the Lord. Another one is 2 Thessalonians 1.4, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith. And so we see in scripture this idea that pride is a good thing when you are taking pride in something that is worth glorifying God about. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to LGBTQ pride, the heart of what LGBTQ pride is about is queer people coming together and celebrating their shared humanity. And that is the main point of pride. Uh, because for generations, queer people have been, their humanity has been denied. They, for the longest time, were subjected to, you know, forced experimentation, yeah. uh, you know, arrested, you know, for being gay. Still to this day, uh, people are subjected to conversion therapy and forced orientation yeah. change, you know, defined as, you know, re- inherently rebellious against God, inherently anti-Christian, like all of these things are denying queer people of their humanity. And pride is about coming together and celebrating our shared humanity, the diversity of the human experience. And that is 100% something that is worth celebrating and that Christians 100% can take part in. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, almost like, I don't know, when I think about some of the stuff you're talking about, there's almost like a language barrier and like misunderstanding that comes from a place of like, this is the association I have for this word or this concept. And I don't want to, for whatever reason, examine why I have those beliefs or why I have those prejudices, maybe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's very true, especially with Especially with LGBTQ pride, I think there is an element of not only do we have automatic associations of pride being sinful, and Mm -hmm. we kind of forget that there is a second use of pride that we use in everyday language that is good. But yeah, LGBTQ people themselves are very foreign to people. Many Mm -hmm. Christians especially have never even knowingly met an openly queer person. And so, yeah, it feels just very distant, very foreign, and oftentimes a threatening thing to many people because it is different and foreign and often perceived as being anti-Christian when Mm. that is not necessarily the case. Mm. Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit more specifically, you know, in you're talking about like pride as this celebration of common humanity. And I know that community is important for everyone, but especially like developing community and relationships of depth. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so crucial for for the human experience, but also for people who've been traditionally and still oppressed by the church, especially. Mm -hmm. I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about your experience of really forming relationships of of depth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is something that the queer community is actually one of the biggest gifts that they can offer the world is, Mm. is community. Because if there's one thing that queer people are good at, queer culture is good at, It is building community. And one of the reasons why is because we have experienced so much rejection from Mm -hmm. 
the communities that we were raised in that we uh, were that were initially a part of our lives and so yeah experiencing that rejection being pushed out of those communities we have had to come up with new ways to do community alternative structures for supporting each other and one of the concepts in queer culture that I love the most is the idea of chosen family. Mm. And um, that is a concept that, the, that queer culture developed. And it's when you have someone in your life who is a mom or a dad, but they are not your biological mom and dad. You choose them and they choose you. And they become that person to you in your life. You have people in your life who are, you know, a brother or a sister to you. And, you know, you, they are, you are not biologically related, but you have chosen each other to be that to each other. And mm-hmm. that has been so important to queer people to, within queer culture because, many queer people are kicked out of their families. Their, you know, parents never talk to them again, or, you know, they find their relationships with family members to be very strained. And so the concept of chosen family is this idea that even if you lack these things in your life, you can nevertheless build relationships that provide the same relational support that traditional concepts of family normally would in our society. You can find other relationships that provide that same support. And I just, I love that. And I think it really reflects a lot of Christian ideas around family and what the church is supposed to be and, you know, who we are in Christ to each other as spiritual siblings. I think we often... I think many Christians get so focused on the nuclear family that we forget that the model that we see in scripture is church as family, the church community as family. And I, I think that is one thing that is just really lacking in churches right now that needs to be recaptured. And I do think that uh, queer people offer unique insight to recapturing that idea. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. This is something I'm real passionate about the idea of spiritual family. And I think this is, I mean, I'm totally, totally on board with you. This is something that we definitely need to learn from our LGBTQ brothers and sisters our LGBTQ plus siblings, I should say. But I, yeah, I love the idea of the church in its intent being this place where no matter your biological background, this is a community where that like supersedes biology in a lot of ways or supersedes our biological connections in a lot of ways. And we even see that I think in the, in the narrative arc of scripture shifting from old Testament, where there is a lot of emphasis on genealogy to new Testament, where Jesus really subverts a lot of Mm -hmm. our, ideas about the primacy of of biological family. Mm -hmm. Scripture actually provides an amazing model for us of what the community could look like. And just as you were saying, queer people have had to discover that and and really find a way to do that in a way that is just so beneficial for the church to learn from. Yeah. Yeah, so true. 
And like you talking about how in the Old Testament, there was an emphasis on being biologically born into the family of God, into the nation of Israel. And then we see that being challenged by Jesus and really reversed into being more, you are spiritually born again. You are not biologically born into the kingdom of heaven the way it was in the Old Testament. Now, with the coming of Jesus, we are spiritually born yeah. um, into the kingdom of heaven. Um, I've always found that whole concept to just be, I don't know, just revolutionary. And one of the best books on this topic, and I don't know if this has come up on your podcast before, is Redeeming Singleness by Barry mm-hmm. Danilak. He like taught, he like walks you through the whole thing about how there was a foreshadowing in the Old Testament where, you know, you had to be biologically born into the kingdom. You had to be circumcised in order to right. signify that belonging. And then you get to the New Testament. What did ha- what is circumcision now? Circumcision is a matter of the heart. And those who follow Jesus are those who have been born again into the spiritual kingdom, who have been, whose hearts have been changed um, and seared by the Holy Spirit. So yeah, I think it's just, it's so beautiful and, you know, it's transformative in how we think about each other as Mm -hmm. siblings in Christ. Yeah. I would love to hear a little bit how like maybe you personally have found some of that chosen family that you were talking about. Like how have you developed some of those relationships? Yeah. So for me, the way that has looked is I have um, someone who uh, I consider to be a partner Mm -hmm. where we are doing life together, but not in a romantic sense, not in a sexual sense, not in any kind of sense in which it would normally be understood. Mm -hmm. Though many people look at our relationship and try to kind of force these, you know, very normative structures upon our relationship and try to Mm -hmm. say like, you know, this looks, this looks like some kind of romantic relationship Mm -hmm. to, to them. But in fact, we really see our relationship through the lens of friendship. And we do life together and value each other's friendship value each other's relationship and see each other as partnered together in life and in supporting each other in our walks with Jesus. Hmm. And it's been a, a super meaningful relationship for me and one that has provided me a lot of support. And, you know, for me, I am not the type of person who is able to live alone. I've never lived alone really ever in my life except for a short stint of time that was for less than a year. And I did not like really, I like, I feel like I barely survived that period. I just don't like being living alone. And so, you know, having someone to do life side by side with has been, you know, a really important thing for me in life. And so the two of us are are building a life together in a platonic, um, committed relationship. And Mm. it's actually a concept that the queer community invented. It's called a queer platonic relationship. And it's understood through the lens of committed friendship. And you can look it up online. There's lots of resources about it. And yeah, that was one of the things that really inspired me to rethink relationships was, Hmm. was learning about queer platonic partnerships or relationships Mm -hmm. through as a result of kind of getting to know the queer community. 
um, and hearing queer people deconstructing the importance of romantic relationships. Like, why do you need a romantic partner in order to have, you know, relational security and stability in your life? You don't. Uh, That's not essential. Why do you need a sexual partner? You don't. Like, these things Mm. that we think are essential in order to live a happy life are, you know, things that society has told you is Mm. essential, but they're not. And those concepts were broken down for me the, for the first time by queer people. And the notion that, you know, I could do life with someone and, you know, not be remotely interested in building, you know, a romantic connection with them was like mind boggling. And I find it's been like a really, I guess, transformative thing and helping me think about, you know, how I want to live my life and, you know, just building relationships from there. Yeah. Yeah. So was that something that you were actively seeking out or you kind of met this person and you were both interested in it? Like, how did that come about? It was not something that I was actively seeking out. It just kind of happened where the two of us met, we became friends. And during the course of our friendship, we found ourselves getting closer um, and closer until she became one of my closest friends. And just we found our lives just continually intersecting in like, weird ways and ways that we could only attribute to God, where I don't know how, but for like several years at a time, we kept on working at the same place, completely unintentionally, but it would just happen where you know, because we were both teachers, and I got assigned to a school and she happened to get assigned to that same school a year later. And then I wound up moving to a different school. And then she wound up moving to that school too a year later. Like, and, and we've just found ourselves, like our lives just intersecting and becoming so interwoven. And we were like, hey, I don't mind being around you all the time. <laughs> and wow, that's kind of different. And just realizing that we were really good supports for each other. And that this was something that was rare to find. And so it, it was not something I was looking for. It was not something that I was definitely that I was necessarily like, I need this. Um, it just kind of happened and mm. is something that I've been very grateful for over the years. Yeah. So was there like conversation, like a commitment conversation that y'all had? Yeah, I would say there's been commitment conversations where, you know, throughout, I guess, our relationship with each other, we've like paused and been like, hey, so, you know, what's going on? What are we, what are we doing? And Mm. what does this look like for us? And there wasn't always like this idea of like being lifelong committed to each other. I would say we've only kind of arrived at that in the past couple of years. We've been friends for about eight years now and been in what we've considered something akin to a partnership for most of those eight years. Mm. But we never necessarily considered it this lifelong commitment until like the past couple years and where we like really sat down and we're like, okay, this is what we want to do. This is something that we're ready and willing to commit to. And 
this is a really great life and this is what we want out of life. And so, yeah, it's been, it's been a process and taken a lot of time. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about like moments where you just kind of kept finding yourselves like Mm -hmm. assigned to the same schools or in the same, you know, just continually brought together. Mm -hmm. I would love to hear a little bit more about how how you've experienced God and how this relationship has really helped to edify and encourage your faith. Maybe how like God's met you through this relationship. Yeah, I think probably a big way that I've seen God working through our relationship is just that having the like stability of knowing that someone is there mm. has really, I guess impacted my ability to just commit to other things in my life, if that makes Mm. sense. Because, uh, you know, so many, so many relationships, you you just don't know, they're just the commitment just doesn't exist. Maybe it should exist, but it just doesn't. And I really think we need more committed relationships. But that's just not how most people see relationships. And that's just the sad fact of the matter. But having even just one person in my life where there was security, where there was stability, where I knew that there was a level of commitment there to be there for each other has uh, provided like relational foundation to make it, I guess, more doable for me to serve in various Mm -hmm. ways because we can support each other in doing those things. And, you know, there was like, I remember distinctly one time where I was teaching at a school and there was one of my students, her mom had had a child. And, you know, normally in most churches, someone has a kid and they'll set up like a meal train and people will show up and like, I don't know bring them casseroles and things like that. And I knew that this woman wasn't connected to anything like that. And I was Mm -hmm. like, you know what, we should bring her a casserole or something. And probably if I was living by myself, it would have just stayed in the realm of nice ideas that that would be wouldn't that be nice if I did that? Yeah, it would be but like, it would never actually happen. But because there was like someone else that I was like talking through the idea with, She was like, oh my gosh, we should do that. And we kind of like built upon each other until eventually we found each other in the supermarket buying, you know, pasta and other ingredients for things because there's another person to kind of spur you on. The Bible says iron sharpens iron. So one man sharpens another. And, you know, it's kind of difficult to have that happen by yourself. But when you've got someone else who is a healthy person alongside you, you know, you present a good idea and they refine that idea and you got this back and forth and you're, you know, encouraged to just do more with your life as a result of that. And I found that to be true in our relationship. Mm. Gosh, that's so good. I mean, like all of the things that you're saying, I think that something that like a language that I use that I got from a survey that I did of my audience is this idea of having a built-in teammate and how ingrained in us that that like can maybe only come in the form of a spouse mm-hmm. is like a thing that I kind of notice a lot in the in the singleness conversation and in a lot of the assumptions that we kind of have about what our lives can look like. But mm-hmm. what you're talking about is like really that idea of having a built-in teammate is just like completely reimagined. It's mm-hmm. like outside of the romantic and sexual context, but it's still like 
that thing that we as human beings need. Yeah. Right. Like you Mm -hmm. were saying, like, I mean, I have so many things that I'm like, yeah, I should do that or I should do that or that seems like a good idea. But there isn't that like spurring one another on and that like built in kind of support to be like, yeah. And that is like, like if I want that, I have to like send a text to someone and I like can send that text to any number of people. You know what I mean? Whereas it's like, it's like another level of another layer of decision making, I guess. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. if you have that kind of go to person mm-hmm. that is taken away, which is, mm-hmm. I think, some of the like bandwidth or fatigue that can come from making something like that happen. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the whole like you you said teammate, built in teammate. And yeah, that I think that's totally the the concept is, you know, so much more gets done when you're working on a team than by yourself. And Mm. that's the case with anything. And that, that also makes me think, and this is something that I wanted to mention, because I don't want people to like get the idea that what I'm talking about, this idea of queer platonic relationships is only something that you do with one other person. Mm. That's like something that's often talked about in queer circles and discussing queer platonic relationships is that they like this this concept is breaking down the idea that you can only have this relationship with one other person but you can have it with multiple people you can have it with two other people or three other people the way we're kind of wired as humans you know our closest circles can't necessarily go beyond five or more people because it just gets too much but like you can have these types of commitments to multiple people Um, in your Mm -hmm. circle at a time. It doesn't have to be just one other person. And that, again, is a really important concept. Just this idea that, like, you don't, we aren't just limited to one person in our life. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think we only have space to, like, really intensely love one person and everybody else gets the leftovers. That actually is not the case. That's actually not even necessarily healthy. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, there's there's space for more than one most important person that provides mm. stability and security. And, you know, that I think also needs to be encouraged and promoted. That's harder to do because it's harder to find people that are interested in um, having that kind of commitment in a relationship that is not a husband or a wife. But yeah. it is nevertheless something that people do do. And something that I I think can be cultivated over time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Bridget, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how we can support you. We're kind of coming to the end of our time here, and I would love to leave a little space for you to talk about, you know, where we can follow you, where and when we can pre-order your book, that sort of thing. Yeah. So uh, I guess probably the best way that you can support me is, yeah, by pre-ordering my book. And this is something that I have discovered as a result of being a new author. Book pre-orders make a huge difference in a book's initial success because it, you know, is what the publisher uses to, you know, you know, set up you know, they're to predict how many books are going to sell. It kind of determines whether or not it lands on bookshelves Mm -hmm. in bookstores as well. 
And then as a result of that gets in front of more people. So if people want to, pre-ordering my book would be amazing and would be a huge help to me. And also I think would, you know, make a huge difference in just kind of getting a lot of the the message of my book out there to more people, which is just kind of unpacking a lot of the harm and hurt that LGBTQ people have experienced as a result of discrimination in Christian communities. Um, so yeah, you can you can pre-order my book on Amazon. It's Heavy Burdens. Um, if you just do a search for Heavy Burdens, Bridget Eileen Rivera, it'll pop up. You can also, if you're not down with Amazon, I have other retailers on my website, BridgetEileenRivera.com, and you can purchase it with a, another retailer on my website if that's something that interests you. So yeah, that's probably the, the biggest thing that comes to mind. I love it. Will you tell us when the book comes out? It comes out October 26th. Awesome. Yep. So it's, we're getting there. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's still a ways away, but it's coming up. (laughs) Yeah. Super exciting. Well, thank you for telling us about all of that. And I would love for you to share with us one thing that's hard right now and one thing that's great. One thing that's hard right now. So I'm, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm getting my PhD in sociology. And I would say that's probably the biggest thing that's hard for me right now. It's a big undertaking to get a PhD, lots of work involved in it. And I'm about halfway through, I hope, that I'm trying to stay on track. So that's probably the biggest thing is staying on track and getting this done and all of that. One thing that's great right now, this is going to be funny because my puppy has been really annoying this entire episode, but <laughs> I uh, recently, we got a puppy and it, she has just been the joy of my days for the past few months because She's just so much fun. And it's been really nice, especially because with COVID, I've been working from home every day and the days just run together and you wind up getting like super, super just like, I don't know, like stuck with like the only thing you're thinking about is yourself and the projects that you are doing and like everything just kind of becomes this like tunnel of like your life and like yeah, it gets really exhausting. And so getting a puppy has like really been great because it's pulled me out of just my things that I'm doing and given me something outside of myself to focus on. And so she's been a really great addition. Bridget, thank you so much for being here. I I so appreciated all of your insight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great convo. You can find Bridget on social media at Traveling Nun or on her website, BridgetEileenRivera.com. Pre-order her upcoming book, Heavy Burdens, Seven Ways LGBTQ Christians Experience Harm in the Church, wherever you get your books. If you're a single Christian, you've probably found yourself in some derpy situations. You know, like when someone you barely know starts talking about your biological clock hard to know how to respond and seems like nobody's talking about how weird these situations really are. That's why I created the Single Christian Derptitude Test. It's like a fun aptitude test for navigating the derpy things that happen to singles at church. What if I told you that you have a social superpower that can keep you from losing your ever-living mind in these situations? 
Find out yours at marybesafer.com backslash quiz. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Rise of the Gingers for partnering on today's episode. Just as a heads up, I am an affiliate of Rise of the Gingers, which means I get a wee percentage of each sale at no cost to you. This season of Unsuitable with Mary B. Seyfried is produced by me, Mary B. Seyfried. Sound engineering is by Bijoy Ahmed, and the theme music is by Chad Rollinson. That's all for now. Catch y'all on the flippy flop.